0: Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin.
1: God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing.
0: I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet.
1: Hello and welcome to the first edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast here in 2019. Yes, granted, it's been 2019 for a little while, but the movie year has now moved into 2019 following the amazing Fixie Awards, the last two episodes, which we hope everybody enjoyed all... What was, it? What was the total running time of the two episodes? Um, I think They've it been...
0: was just under four hours.
1: Okay, so we, we were shy of the running time of what is likely to be uh, for the Oscars, but we were still... Um, Pretty long, but I think we filled it with a lot of good material. We hope everybody agrees. Uh, We did get a few emails from people, which we'll touch on a bit later, hopefully. Um, But we are moving on to 2019, um, and fittingly, with two films that premiered on Netflix, High Flying Bird from Steven Soderbergh and Velvet Buzzsaw from Dan Gilroy. Uh, We will discuss both of those films and finish everything off with our top five most anticipated films for 2019
0: you want to get back on the court and as your agent i want to get you there but we are in a lockout
1: there are no actual games to watch
0: you think these fools these rich white dudes gonna let this sexiest sport fall by the wayside this team's my family I need us to be one big family again. Football is fun, but it don't sell sneakers. To move merch and inspire rap lyrics, they need your services.
1: The NBA wanted control of a game that we played, we played better. They invented a game. On top of a game.
0: I can see a whole infrastructure that put the control back in the hands of those behind the ball gonna do. but i'm about to pull up a chair
1: okay guys so today we're going to talk about both high flying bird and velvet buzz so i actually think these are two movies pretty well suited to discuss in conjunction with each other but i think um like we did last year specifically with eighth grade and boy erased um let's discuss them separately however um my opening question for you sort of does merge the two um if it's all right, I'd like to discuss High Flying Bird first. Great. However, um, my question basically stems from a line in Velvet Buzzsaw. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character of Morph VanderWalt asks the very simple question, if no one sees it, is it still art or some variation of that line? I don't know if that's exactly correct. And I'm wondering if you guys think that Steven Soderbergh should consider this statement.
2: What do you mean by that? Because it's on Netflix?
1: Not exactly, but he tends to make these movies uh, much in the vein of High Flying Bird that I have always kind of categorized as more experiments than movies. Um, He seems to be, you know, in this case, shooting on an iPhone, which he's done once before. He uh, tends to make these movies that examine very, very specific (laughs) worlds, um, but not totally focusing too much on the story going on within them. Um, And I always find it to be interesting that, you know, he does these, you know, he also, of course, does his bigger budget Hollywood films. um, But, you know, he is very focused on, you know, the art, for lack of a better term, when it comes to a lot of his movies. And they don't really have an audience. I mean, they're not ever really marketed. They show up on Netflix, which gives them some marketing, I guess, in that way. but.
0: I have a quote from him, if you'd like.
1: Well, that would be interesting, sure.
0: Um, I hope we do get to talk about this Netflix thing later on, because um, I had some questions for you guys about it. But he's, And I saw I was going to save this quote for it, but it's a good time to read it now. He says, it felt like the kind of film it is, the best way to maximize eyeballs. It got a better shot at finding all the people who will like it. Otherwise, it's a slow rolling platform release, which are expensive and you're bound by where the big art house theaters are. You can't just go anywhere. I just felt I'd rather have it drop and have everybody be able to see it. Um, And this is the idea I kind of want to talk about um, later on after we discuss these two movies. But I do think that there is something to the um, theoretical sort of um expansion of the netflix platform which is that um with movies that are owned uh all out or produced by netflix um you know they can go essentially all over the world um and every any person who wants to subscribe to netflix can see the film um and i think uh dan gilroy had something similar to say which i'll save for our discussion later on but um i mean I understand your point, Lee, about like maybe the content of the film, but in terms of like it airing and <clears throat> um, you know, where, where the film plays and the the mechanics of how it's released, uh, I think that is rather important to, to Steven Soderbergh. That seems to be why he chose Netflix for this film.
1: And I think that's true. And I think Netflix has changed things a little bit, but Soderbergh has been doing this long before Netflix came around. I mean, you think about movies like the girlfriend experience or things yeah. like that bubble, you know, where, where, you know, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the goal of this movie? Um, you know, it is an art form. It is him, you know, you know, shooting on different mediums and, yeah, uh, exploring different, you know, very specific worlds, but, you know, it goes back and sort of begs that question, is it still art if no one sees it? And like I said, Netflix has changed things a bit because more people can see it now than ever. But who is he making this movie for? Like, it, what what is his purpose if well, you take why, Netflix why do you out ass- of the equation?
0: Why do you assume nobody will see it? Do you mean just because it, it doesn't feel like a, as a commercial film as, say, the Ocean's movies? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, a bit like that. I mean, and again, I, I, High Flying Bird being on Netflix – Kind of breaks the trend a little bit, but if you look at all of his work, what's his what's his goal here?
2: I think I mean I think he's being smart, and what he, his quote makes a lot of sense as far as like here he is making a, a movie that um, sort of famously now we know has been sh- was shot on an iPhone, uh, which we can get into a little bit, and is uh, about a very specific thing of like sports agents in the NBA dealing with a lockout. Um, there are going to be eyeballs for that. There's going to be people who are interested in arthouse films, and there's going to be people who are interested in the NBA that want to see it. And unlike a movie like Roma, which I think didn't benefit from being on Netflix and, and needed to be seen in, in a theater, this movie is almost better suited between its cinematography and its subject matter and the people it wants to get across to to be on Netflix. So I totally get why Soderbergh did, did this and what he was going for here. Now, the movie itself, which we'll get into is a whole other discussion, whether we, we liked it or not, but as far as what his concept of um, putting it on Netflix and the, the subject matter of it and how he shot it, it, it definitely, I think, benefited from the platform. It was released on.
0: We we talked about this um, earlier this year. I think I think when we are on our last kind of double podcast with with eighth grade and I brought up the fact that I felt like that was a small movie with you know with no pejorative assumptions made there. I don't think that's a bad thing. I just mean that you know there are movies that are made and I think they're being made more now, which I think is great. That don't feel you know necessarily ambitious in terms of their subject matter. Um, you know, that doesn't, that isn't to say that this movie doesn't reach for certain heights and does uh, innovative new things. Uh, and the same goes for eighth grade. I mean, we all really enjoyed eighth grade and gave it a lot of praise. Um, it just, the subject matter is smaller. And, and, and for me, um, in this new era where we can kind of see movies in a lot of different ways, um, it's exciting to me that there are films tailored for plat you know different platforms and and you know i think the point he's making in that quote i just read to you guys is that you know he made this movie for two million dollars on an iphone it you know you kind of seem it 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 appears that way um but he didn't have to have like a you know 20 million dollar marketing budget um and deals with all these theaters to get it to get people to see it, you know? It's the correct platform for a film like this. And that isn't to say that like Roma isn't a very ambitious, visually stunning movie, um, that you know, that happens to be on Netflix. But, you know, I think you can kinda the nice thing about these all these platforms is you can tailor your film and the scale of it and the ambition of even the story and the ideas to something that, you know, we didn't really have to pay anything extra to see, right? Like, um, we all are Netflix subscribers and we can just turn it on and watch it whenever we want to. And so can, you know, hundreds of millions of people immediately.
1: So, so do you guys think, I guess where I'm coming from a little bit with this is like, so, you know, obviously the shot on the iPhone is one thing, but like he, he messes around a ton with what he's doing here. I mean, you see a million different angles during one scene straight on overhead. He's crossing the 180 line, like all sorts of different things. You know, to just kind of, I guess, give you a different look at what would normally be just a simple camera setup dialogue scene. And I don't understand why, at least in this movie, like I didn't see what that did for the movie. And I guess this will dive us in a little bit more into the movie specifically um, and not just on who's seeing it. But, you know, I didn't understand what the purpose was to serve the story here. Yeah, that's really I mean, that's really interesting. I, I even the i even shooting on the iPhone. Like what you know, aside from well, it being I, cost I, effective. I
0: mean, I just have to say that I, I absolutely hated that. Um, and I don't think that the look of it. I, I don't think there's any reason to shoot on iPhones. I, I this under- is the second
1: time he's done this, I, know. I believe. He did it with Unsane. I,
0: I mean mo- like it like, didn't
2: look like it was shot on an iPhone. Yeah, it, it looked mean, horrible. That- that's kind of like what do we do? like well, yeah, it looks like it shot on an iPhone, so what are you getting out of that? I mean, unless it's a, this it's is a
0: small it's small, right like you can I, I listen to interviews with him because I was fascinated by this because i I honestly think Steven Soderberg is probably our most fascinating filmmaker in the sense that he lives his career out in his films like you can feel like he's the only filmmaker I've ever heard of retiring and coming out of retirement, like you know Michael Jordan. I, I and and you can like you can see like his feelings about movies in his work, um, but that being said, like he he, I, camera like digital cameras are so small. He knows this. He he was one of the first people to start using digital cameras, um, for this very reason. And and there's no reason they're so small that it, it, there's not a huge difference between that and an iPhone. You know, like I, I suppose there, you can probably put an iPhone a few more places you couldn't put, you know, a, a red with you know without a battery on it or something. And, and so I, I have to say that I hated that part of it. But to answer your but- the larger question, Lee, I think that like. I think that what I find interesting about Soderberghs, and I think these like the the sort of the smaller girlfriend experience type Soderbergh movies, is he kind of focuses on like the like to me this was like the less heroic versions of this story, right? Like the sort of the you know you can imagine like a more dramatic, more emotional uh, version of this story where you know these players are feeling. Um, exploited, and you know their agents are helping to get the, the Jerry sp- Maguire. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but this, he he sort of went the other way with this film, um, and I think there's something interesting in that. Whether it makes for a good film or not, I think it's for us to determine in this podcast. But you know, to me, uh, it's 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 just it. It kind of goes back to that that idea I was talking about. This the you know the sort of the scale of it, the ambition of the storytelling. It's like this is a different. This is a different angle on this story we've seen before.
2: Yeah, and to go back to the iPhone thing, Javen, it's like even though you're shooting with an iPhone, you still need to put the whole only reason this works is the lenses that they're putting on it. It's not like he's just taking an iPhone out of his pocket and shooting. You still got to light it. You still got to you know, control the frame with extras and set design and all this other stuff. So the difference like you said between using an iPhone or using Uh, Of red it i don't see what it gets you other than kind of a worse look i mean what
1: i was hoping for was like and and there was i i don't think it ended up really having anything to do with the being shot on the iphone but like i was thinking like okay like you know this this movie story touches a bit on you know instagram wars that these nba players have and like if you pay any attention to the nba you know it is sort of like the real housewives of the nba like they're just a lot of drama amongst the stars and a lot of stuff on Instagram and social media. So, you know, integrating that into a story and then shooting it on an iPhone, there's a connection there like that could be interesting, but it doesn't really have anything to do with that. And like that's where I, you know, got also frustrated. I'm like, "Okay, why cross the 180 degree line in this in this scene of dialogue? Why have this character talking and shoot from both sides of him overhead, straight on?" You know, what is this doing to serve the story? It doesn't seem to make any difference one way or the other. And that's why I always say an experiment. Like it's just him experimenting with camera angles, experimenting with the what he shoots on. And it doesn't ever seem to serve the story and it holds your attention to a certain extent while you're watching, but then just becomes almost immediately forgettable. Yeah.
2: Right. Like he didn't he didn't have any compelling reason to tell this story for those experiments. You know what I right, mean? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean it's like what why? I,
0: I, and like I think of <clears throat> I think of Soderberg as a, a kind of a contemporary to um, to uh, David Fincher, <clears throat> I think they're friends and they like show each other their movies and they kind of came up at the same time but and they also have sort of similar sensibilities in a way, but I think Soderberg is much more interested in like the process of filmmaking and how to like change it and how you know different differences in the process of filmmaking affect the outcome of the film. Um, and he's always been someone very sort of open about that. Um, but I will say that, that, uh, going back to your original question, Lee, like this is a movie written by a playwright. The movie, uh, the guy is, his name is Terrell Alvin McCraney. He has written almost all, solely a bunch of plays, but this is his own, the only film he's ever written or at least the only film that's been produced. Um, and it kind of feels like a play, right? Like it, it, there, it, it's a lot of dialogue. Um, there's not a lot of action. There's just a lot of, you know, scenes that you could imagine being, um, executed on a stage. And I think, you know, maybe that appeals to Soderbergh, like this idea that, that, um, you know, there's, how do you, how do you make, uh, you know, essentially a dialogue driven film about like a very cinematic and kind of action oriented sport, you know? I mean, the whole point of the film is that nothing, none of this is happening. These, these players, these people who have this physicality are not executing, but rather they're just sort of talking about it a lot. Um and then you know how from his perspective do, do you make that interesting you know how do you I don't think I don't think he did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean well, okay. like honestly I, it's a boring movie.
1: I don't know. I think there was a, a a I think there was a bit of it that was interesting to follow. Like I said it was pretty immediately forgettable and I don't feel like the means justified the end or I guess the other way around the end didn't really justify the means. Um it was sort of a leap and a ridiculous one at that at the end but I don't know, I I sort of thought that while this movie, much of the time, was very much set in reality, it was interesting in that way because you were dealing with, you know, what is this guy's plan for his client? How's everybody going to make money? I, I don't know that we should or can spend a lot of time talking about the story here because it is pretty thin, but it's basically just, you know, about what these people do. Like, basically, people who rely on this league being you know not in a lockout to make their money outside of Mm -hmm. the players how are they going to make money during that and i think there's a little bit of intrigue there but they don't flesh it out too much and i don't know that he ever really had the intention to which again goes back to my opening question like this is he's not doing that for this
2: i just couldn't i couldn't have cared less about these characters that was my problem was i just didn't see any of the stakes in it like they're a bunch of millionaires. They definitely tra- weren't.
1: They tried to yeah. make enormous stakes. Like, ever- right. there were so many scenes where, like,
2: oh, my God, he's going to do this. Like, or he's going to be fired or yeah. she's going to be fired. And it's like, okay, great. And the fact that it was sort of like a play didn't didn't let you get into the um, – like, you just didn't feel sympathy for him because it was just all – it was it was just all dialogue back and forth, and you, there was never any moments of of reflection or something like that that you could kind of get like, layer the dialogue into.
0: I think that's like an I inter- said,
1: not a lot to talk about. <laughs> I think that's
0: an interesting point. I mean, uh, uh, kind of the things we've been talking about, like why you know, what like what why make this movie? It, it just it, it didn't really have a lot to say. You know, it feels like it feels like a lot of times. I think filmmakers, especially someone like Soderbergh, who I, like I said is so interested in the process, and I think is kind of wanting to work and wanting to. You know, he's you know he 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 edits, he shoots all his own movies, um, and so he's so much involved in the in the process of it. It, it. You know, you you can understand wanting to kind of like move forward with a film without necessarily knowing. How you what you want yeah, yeah he just wants to do it he just wants to do it, and exactly. whether it's good or not
2: it's kind of secondary he just wants to be like, oh yeah, this would be great I'll shoot it on an iPhone you know we'll talk we'll do basketball that's interesting and we'll just I want to you know get out there and do it and then when it's done, here it is here's my finished product you know sometimes they're good sometimes they're not. I'll move on to the next one
1: so what do you guys think about the like because I think what he's doing here is just another example of like I said before like very specific worlds so like you have basically sports agents here and the inner workings of the business end of the NBA and with unsane last year you had mental institutions prescription drugs the use of prescription drugs things like that we've talked about um, the girlfriend experience high-end call girls like a very specific world and then male strippers in magic Mike like another one like they're always like oddly specific like right. more specific than you'd think and i i think he finds that interesting kind of like those behind the scenes type stories that maybe he just relies too much on the specificity of that and doesn't you know write a story to go beyond it and that's what's missing i haven't seen magic mike but i've seen all these other ones and sure. like, they're, like they're all forgettable Actually Magic Mike was the one I wanted to see the
0: most, but just never got to it. I I kinda like Magic Mike, to be honest with
1: you. Well that's what I've heard. It's not bad, but like and I you know, Unsane wasn't bad at all. And I don't I girlfriend experience I hardly remember, but they're they're all forgettable to me.
0: Um well (laughs) Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean um I, I thought of this because we were, you know, we just finished our Um, our fixies. And I went back and, you know, I think in 2011, we all loved um, our number one movie was Moneyball. Is that correct? Yes. And he was supposed to direct Moneyball. And he did in this film what his plan was for Moneyball, which was going to be take this kind of um, take the story of the Oakland A's and Billy Bean and cut it in with like real interviews with players, um, which he kind of did here. And I'm really glad he didn't do that in Moneyball. And I, you know, I I don't, I, I I find that interesting because in this film, the focus seems to be the Andre Holland character, who is an agent, and you know, Zazie Beats who's I guess his assistant. And there's there's a lot of focus on behind the scenes of players, um, and we don't get a really like I don't feel like the um, the basketball player character, the those characters are are sort of secondary, and they're almost like, you know they aren't talked about but but then you cut to these interviews of these real life uh, basketball players talking about um you know kind of interesting elements of the league like you know yeah they don't they don't really give us um a a sense of how to manage our money um you know all these things about being kind of a young rookie player but that wasn't what this film was about it was more about like the um ray burke negotiating with Um, the, the teams and like manipulating behind the scenes, almost like a, an episode of like entourage or ballers or something, you know, and in in a little bit more of a, um, kind of a dramatic way or a little more of a subtle way. But, um, so I, I was confused about that approach, um, that, yeah. And I found it interesting. He incorporated
2: Netflix into the actual movie itself. Right.
0: That that is interesting. Because when did he remind me? When did he do that? They made a because deal he, to like yeah. to broadcast. Um, oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's kind of like what he's doing in this games, movie, yeah.
2: exactly reflected They're, in biz, in
0: the NBA. Yeah. That is. interesting. Yeah.
1: Again, I think it's just him. I really do think it's Soderbergh. Just like he's interested in this behind the scenes, so he's going to have players talk about one aspect of it. He's going to dramatize another aspect of it. And if there's a story that unfolds in the meantime, so be it. But, you know, this, you know, here's a chance for him to, like, talk about some things that he's interested in all while messing around with where his camera's set up. And... Do, you
2: th- do you think it's easier for him to do that by taking these smaller stories? Like, do you think it's easier for him to wrap his mind around what he wants to do if he's just like, okay, so this is the movie about the NBA agent during the lockout? that's what i need that's what the movie i'm going to make whereas like magic mike's about male strippers and then instead of expanding beyond just that to a to a bigger story do you think it just is easier for him to wrap his mind around and make that movie
1: i think it is because it's small and he doesn't have to focus as much on that and he has other and the stakes are lower critique is so limiting and
0: emotionally draining I'm hoping you find something to explain what's happening. Which one's better, one or two? Better, worse, no different. No different.
1: I'm quite curious to know Ethan. I think sober hasn't been good for him. Pierce was in the full bloom of alcoholism here. Exactly. I never should sort have of quit drinking.
0: No originality, no courage. My opinion. I can't save you.
1: I found
2: something.
0: Who did these?
2: Uh, Mesmeric.
1: A guy upstairs, he died. And you just took them? He had my family or friends. I can make you rich. It's brilliant.
0: Demand has people ready to kill.
1: Have you got good of an artist in Ventral deals?
0: No, not in our records and we have everyone. The artist used blood to create the reddish blocks.
1: You ever notice anything about this painting? You look at it long enough. It moves. Let's move on now to Velvet Buzzsaw, the newest film from Dan Gilroy, uh, also starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Their second collaboration since Nightcrawler, which came out a few years back. Um, And like I said in the opening, I think there's a parallel to be drawn here in some way shape or form with uh, High Flying Bird when it comes to art. Obviously this movie takes place in the art world very specific world of art dealers and um how that is done and how consultants are used and articles are written and influence the buyers um but i'm wondering if you guys feel like this movie does a better job of being a piece of art um and i think we can agree then yeah, though, like, I think we can all agree regardless of your feelings on velvet Buzzsaw, I think we can all agree that there's a more interesting and, and, um, fully drawn out story here in velvet Buzzsaw, mm-hmm. and we'll get to that. But in terms of just, you know, an art form, because I have some, some thoughts on this. So just in forms of, in, in terms of being an art form, uh, and a piece of art, do you guys think that there's anything to talk about here with this film? No, really?
2: <laughs> I, I don't. So I, a, bad, I thought, a
0: bad week for you, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, I
2: just thought this movie was all over the place in in terms of trying to present it as a piece of art, like trying to say something about art itself. I, I just felt tonally it was kind of wacky. It like tried to be both a deep, artistic, philosophical film, but also this weird sort of horror film. It honestly. Part of it felt like um, a Goosebumps book Mm. from R.L. Stein, where the paintings come to life.
0: The the, the thought I, what I want to ask you guys is like, when does, this is a satire, but satire is so hard to do. And when, when is it done in a way that is like actually enjoyable, um, I mean, I, I he uh, when I listened to an interview on the way in here, guys, um, with Dan Gilroy, which I always find like I always like debate whether I should do it or not because I feel like it'll influence. I always like to do it at least after the movie, so like I'm you know at least my feelings are solidified by that. But he was saying that um Amer- the movie American Psycho, which you guys know is a, you know used to be a, a favorite of mine, was a influence and one that he thought was satirical in a really effective way, and I, I would agree with that. I don't know that this film has it, but. Do you know what I mean? Like satire to me is such a yeah. Hard no, it's thing a great
2: it's a great question because it's yeah. a tough line, and and they just don't find a way to cross it. In my opinion, in Velvet Buzzsaw, they stay on the side of the line where uh, it becomes hokey and not satirical.
1: So I think that this movie made an attempt and at times succeeded to. Present itself almost as a painting in in many ways. Like the, the a lot of the scenes were very rich. Like there was a and a lot of that had to do with paintings in the background. But that that was intentional to me. And I felt like um, they did a, a um, what's his name? Um, Els El- Robert Elswit or what's his name? Yeah, Robert um, Elswit. Yeah, Robert Elswit uh, mm-hmm. uh, shot this movie. Um, and he's done a lot of great stuff. He's worked with Paul Thomas Anderson. He won an Oscar for There Will Be Blood. And I liked the way this movie looked. I've actually read some things that were to the contrary, but I liked the way this movie looked and I, th- I thought it kind of worked nicely with what this movie was talking about. There's certainly things that I agree with you on Jeremy about um, this movie, especially the, the horror movie aspect of this, which just was a cliche horror movie with no uh, explanation or reasoning for anything. But, I liked the characters in this movie. I, I sort of liked the the tone and the mood of it. Um, you know, and the... the um, I felt like it was an entertaining and fun movie to watch. I thought it went nowhere. And I think there were some satirical moments. I always feel like with a satire, you need some moments of, of levity, mm-hmm. at least. And though there weren't a lot, but the one thing I got was... Uh, poor Coco that kept discovering all the bodies. Like, right. by the third one, I was like, okay, this actually is okay. Like, the second time she found it, I was like, well, that's a little silly. Like, it's the same person. Like, come up with something new after we've already, like, we just, this just seems like a uh, another Final Destination movie with just fancy, creative ways for people to die, and then the, the assistant keeps finding them. But then by the third one, I was like, okay, this is funny. And she even says, like, oh, Jesus, like, again... Um, So I found that there were bits and pieces of that, so it tried. But, it, you know, ultimately, yes, this movie, I think, failed. But I didn't mind it.
2: I mean, I think, I think everyone was on a different page. I think the cinematographer was on a different page from the director, who was on a different page from um, the writing. Uh, and the actors were all kind of acting. It felt like we're acting in a different movie. Um, Zah so that- Ashton I thought was terrible
1: i didn't mind her jake gyllenhaal was the one who he was in a different movie every other scene like he was he right. was like a, a contemplative art critic one scene and then he was his character in nightcrawler the next with his like eyes bulging out of his head
2: yeah he, he, like, he went between that the nightcrawler <laughs> and uh danny devito in that art episode of always sunny in philadelphia <laughs> yeah he Jumped yep. between those two yep.
1: yep so he was all over the place um but I don't know. Like I sort of liked the dichotomy between these characters and like the snobby uh, uh, character that Jillian Hall is most of the time and like the um, But you didn't
2: find it just like ridiculous with the even the coincidences that happened like this in the like the fact she found these paintings to begin with and okay, the, whole found the dead body
1: dece like, the artist yeah, you know that the the horror movie aspect of this was was fucking ridiculous. It made no sense. There was never an explanation for anything that was happening. They have this one line where they're like, "Anyone who sells the paintings dies." Spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous, and I and I hated that. And as soon as again another spoiler alert. I apologize, but when Tony Collette dies, and you saw that coming, you knew what was going to happen. I was like, "This is this. They're just going to continue to come up with like creative." ways to die
2: stupid ways
1: yeah stupid ways to die and i i do i do want to just point out that the last two tony collette movies i've seen she's now had her head sawn off and her arms sawn off so she's losing limbs with each movie that (laughs) um that she has but yeah that part was ridiculous and i really hated it and right up to what was supposed to be i think what he was hoping for was this this iconic ending with uh renee russo's tattoo and the shot framed exactly like the painting that she took down. I liked these characters, though. I just think that uh, it was interesting, like watching them kind of in this very uh, high-end, snobby world. I thought that was they were fun to
2: watch. Uh, yeah, so interesting watching J- John Malkovich do nothing. The whole—he's just kind of fun to watch. I mean, he just played himself. I mean, was he even a painter? What, like he just kept he showing up, not He's drinking?
1: His—he lost his since he stopped drinking. He lost his his inspiration. I also like the way this movie looked. I know you had some issues with it and its inconsistencies and I it, that's probably true, but I liked the richness of the color palette in this movie and I liked kind of the how that was in and of itself a painting. I don't know. I felt like there was I, some connection there that worked for me.
2: Yeah, unlike Nightcrawler which I found I thought found its tone this one was all over the place it just i feel like it didn't so no so
1: i like nightcrawler too but nightcrawler had the same issue as this movie's horror aspect did where it just like sort of flies off the deep end with no explanation the characters in nightcrawler just get a like all of a sudden way too evil and I, i feel like to a lesser extent it falls victim to some of the same issues um Ultimately, I found that movie to be more effective and memorable than this one will be or is. But I don't know. I, I again, I I'm not gonna sit here and recommend this movie totally. But I had some fun with it. I thought it was uh, well done. Um, but why don't we hear from Chapin? Well, I forgot he was here.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, ultimately, um, to me, the movie is about this. I mean, I think on, you know, it's not a secret it's not even a very um it's not even very hard to discern but like the idea is that all these people in the art world who sort of conspire to you know make this what is i think we're supposed to understand is great art you know that they have just sort of found um and they sort of conspire beforehand to to make it as profitable to them individually as possible um and then, it, to me, I think that is an interesting idea. You know, I don't really know a lot about the art world. Jeremy, you you seem to go to a lot of uh, exhibits and stuff, and I, I, I try to see as much as I can, but this <laughs> aspect of, like, the, sa- the, the, the selling I, and I the... I have no idea about this. This is a huge industry. I mean, I just literally go to regular old museums. Yeah. With, uh, like, with the greats. Right, right. But, as uh, do I. And, like, so I don't know anything about this world, but I, I find it interesting... Um, I do know it's a place people uh launder money. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And and there and there is there is a a a part of like I know um you know rich people buy art obviously and they get tax write-offs for showing them in you know to to us lowly normal people right. um in museums. Um but you know I think to me like uh, you know th- it's very easy to to see that this was um a condemnation of that world, you know, through the um the the, the, the the sort of the idea that these people are conspiring to make you know, what is you know seemingly so pure, this expression of this old man's, you know, um life and his his art through, you know, that he never showed to anybody and was never famous and never sought any, um, you know, money or or fame from that was discovered and then and then corrupted into this you know this kind of um, profitable industry, for lack of a better word, uh, for all, for these people um, is is a very direct metaphor or, or sort of explanation for what happens to the art world, where you know the idea is you're seeking this sort of pure creation and and um, you know connecting with people um and for the and for that uh it, it's been corrupted as a lot of things are by capitalism and by the money around it and and the art world is just kind of a, 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 a very sort of obvious and exaggerated version of how that happens to things because you know somebody spends you know a couple days on a painting and it, it's to, to the to, to to normal people without a, an appreciation for art it looks kind of like a mess and it sells for 150 million dollars right like that's it's just sort of it's it, it's a it's a it's just an exaggerated version of, of capitalism and I think you know that idea was really interesting to me and I liked like you said uh, Lee I liked the characters I found the characters interesting um for that very reason and, and sort of how that works in the art world. And then this idea, this sort of the satirical version of uh, uh, the turn of the film is when art starts uh, literally attacking these people in, 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 in horrible ways. And I, that part of it, I felt like was not fully realized, you know, the, the, yeah, like what? What is the what is the point of this? What what are we what are we supposed to take from this? You know, if it's just, I mean, that is kind of an obvious metaphor that the art now is eating the the people who were destroying it, and um, I would have liked to seen that executed with a little bit more nuance and a little more subtlety and a little bit more, um, you know, kind of intention as to what they were tr- what he what Dan Gilroy was trying to say. Um, And I don't. I'm. I'm not sure it was. Maybe if we went back and watched this in a couple years, we'd understand. It wasn't. You're right. Yeah.
1: Well, Uh, that's a good point. You said it kind of better than I could have, Chapin. But that's a lot of what I was thinking. Like, this is like High Flying Bird, where it's examining this very specific and like, you know, enclosed world of people, and that in and of itself is interesting. And what High Flying Bird didn't do is kind of draw out uh story that is entertaining to go along with that velvet buzzsaw did that story didn't ultimately work because it set no rules for itself the you know the the paintings attacking you satirical or otherwise had no explanation and not that it needs you know one told to us but there needs to be something beyond just anybody who sold a painting is gonna die like you know so that was done poorly but at least here you have a story within this kind of very specific world. And because of that, you, you have something to watch here that holds your attention and, you know, is not terrible.
2: I, I think it would have benefited from having, a, like, Jake Gyllenhaal's character be a little bit more understandable as far as what he was trying to portray. I felt like he was just all over the place with both his style of acting and the dialogue that was written for him that it was hard to grasp like, what are we trying to get away from this, or get from this, through that character? And I, I, I think that also made it a bit murky.
0: I understand you're a brother, Mike. Yeah, yeah, glad to meet you.
1: Paint houses.
2: Yes, I do.
1: Top five time. We are going to talk about our most anticipated films of two thousand nineteen. Uh, we will preface this with the fact that, guys, we all decided to exclude both Martin Scorsese's The Irishman and Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, do you guys both feel like those would have at least made your list?
2: Seems yeah, like they maybe an obvious question. They would have been my top two. I mean, there's just no way around it. I mean, even though The Irishman could be kind of – uh, a disaster based on how long it's taking and how how much the budget's ballooned for Netflix. Uh, <laughs> and those those uh, movies don't tend to do real
1: well for Scorsese. These, when you start hearing too much about Scorsese movies, they uh, they don't tend to go well.
2: But it still piqued my interest just as much, even yeah, if it's a disaster. I'm still going to go see it. No what, yeah, see it.
0: Um, yeah I, I feel the same way. I, I, I don't know that they would be number, number one and two. I am dubious of them for those same reasons one i mean i was not not a very big fan of uh tarantino's last film but i'm hoping that this one will um redeem him for the hateful eight and yeah i mean i'm kind of more interested in the irishman just just kind of from the pure sort of uh let's see what this
1: looks like exactly
0: like it seems like it's become a disaster and um been a been a money pit for for netflix but um you know it's you're hearing so
1: many things like they're 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 getting ahead of everything like Thelma schoonmacher basically saying like hey this isn't good fellas don't everybody be expecting good fellas like it's a different movie and like i feel like they're they're um what is it called when pr people get in front of stuff like right um you know what i mean they're, they're there's a term for it but yeah but uh yeah it makes me nervous but anyway let's move on um Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Any criteria, additionally, that you may have had here in um, your number
2: five? Um, no, it just had to have said it's going to be released in 2019. I know we've done these lists before, and then the movies, for whatever reason, get pushed. But as of now, all of these are supposed to be released in 2019. Okay. And that that being said, my number five already has a trailer out for it, and I've seen it several times in the, um, the theater, and it terrifies me. And I actually don't really oh. want to see it. But I, I want to see it because I know it's going to be good. It's Us by Jordan, Jordan Peele's newest uh, film. I, I can't remember the last time I was that scared of a trailer. Really?
0: It's yeah, the scissors that
2: get me. The scissors. I'm afraid of people I, getting stabbed with scissors. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that for me as much as like when their other versions of them are around. It's really freaky to me. Wow. Yeah, that's. Ooh. I
1: feel the same way as you. I, I don't scare easily, but that's got. To, it's a definitely a, a good trailer.
0: So that's my number five.
1: All right, Chapin.
0: Um, my number five is a film entitled Gemini Man or Gemini Man, um, and it stars Will Smith and is directed by Ang Lee and is produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, and the logline is Henry Brogren, Brogan, an aging assassin seeking to exit his career, finds himself going against a younger clone of himself, who can predict his every move. So it sounds a little bit like um, Looper. <laughs>
1: yeah, I thought but, the same um, thing.
0: Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I I find I find these projects I, these these will always appeal to me. These sort of oh, the odd director you know the interesting director t- um you know paired with the the aging movie star with kind of a, an interesting sci-fi idea i will always be intrigued by that um i think ang lee is probably one of our most interesting working filmmakers he always seems to take on like a different type of film and sometimes that works out really nicely and sometimes it works out terribly um and i i love those stakes and so that's why gemini man gemini man whatever we want to say is my number 5
1: and Will Smith, I feel like is due. I mean,
0: yeah, he's due. And he's, like,
1: he's, he can... have you
2: seen the genie thing he's done? Oh, doing? that looks horrible. Uh, well,
1: Aladdin, uh, you mean? Yeah, he did blue face.
0: Racist. Yeah, he plays
1: a lot, he plays the genie but in did, Aladdin, but the did you live action see, Aladdin. I know he looks terrible. Did you terrible. see it though? Yeah, did you see yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, did I you did. See it, it? Did. It, it looks ridiculous. Looks yeah. It looks like he looks like Ricky Gervais in extra makes that face. Um, All right, so my number five, also a movie that has a trailer out, um, you know, one that certainly catches you for a very obvious reason, but the director is what's got my interest here. It is Danny Boyle's Yesterday. Mm. Um, Have you guys seen this trailer? No. Okay, so this is basically the story of when... Uh, I guess the power goes out in the entire world and then when it comes back on, the Beatles never existed except for this one guy that remembers them and sings all their songs and becomes famous. Sound ridiculous? It. Yeah, sounds no, a little I'd ridiculous. Um, uh, Himesh Patel plays um, uh, plays Jack who remembers the Beatles and basically starts singing their songs and becomes super famous. Uh, you got a lot of Cameos, James Corden, Ed Sheeran all show up in this movie. Um, Lily James plays the love interest, who uh, admittedly I may have a little crush on. But oh, I love um, either way, Danny Boyle directing this, I think certainly adds some um, importance to it. And Scripted I'm by Richard curious. Curtis. Yes, Richard Curtis.
0: Of Love Actually, Four yeah, Weddings love Actually, and Furinals, yeah. blah, blah, blah.
1: So we'll that see. Actually, I mean, sounds great. It could be I like the that, trailer is totally can sweep you up because it's got a bunch of Beatles songs. But so I, it's hard to give it credit just for that. But take a peek at it. it comes out June twenty eighth.
2: Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch that trailer right after this is over. Right now, <laughs> right. Hold on. Uh, all right. So on to number four. So my number four probably would be higher on the list if it wasn't for the director. Oh. Um, and it is uh joker with joaquin phoenix yeah Yeah. the joker gives
1: i mean uh the director gives me pause here as well
2: yeah so todd phillips is directing most famous for the hangover movies um but this cast looks interesting anything joaquin phoenix does it's almost a must watch uh de niro's in it de niro's going to be in two of my most anticipated movies coming up this year so it's been a while since i've said that Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely am going to go see it just because it's sub being the Joker and Joaquin Phoenix is involved. Can I ask you a question, Jeremy?
0: Yeah. Um, do you feel like Joaquin Phoenix is at that point where I feel like, I mean, Leo is the ultimate master of this, which is that him being in the film is an endorsement of the project. Um, I don't know if
2: he's quite there yet. He's close though, but he does, he does too many movies in a weird way where leo kind of picks and chooses every every other year he's going to be in a movie and it's going to be with a great director like joaquin phoenix will do movies like uh like even this year when he did um he won't get far on foot uh, even though i do like uh gus van Sant as a director that that movie wasn't very good
1: todd phillips appears to be trying something new with his last two films. He did um, War Dogs, which I did not see. I don't know if either of you guys did. but um, And now with Joker, perhaps comedy is behind him. I don't know if that's good or bad. Honestly, I mean, he's made a... I liked old school. Road Trip was okay. I mean, you know, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what he does with this.
0: Okay. Uh, My number four is a tie. I apologize for that, but you'll understand the connection. It is um, the culmination of couple stories in Star Wars Episode Nine and Avengers Endgame. Um, Boring. Blockbuster Chapin's mini-review. Yeah, well, here's what I'll say. Like, <laughs> I mean, I am a diehard Star Wars fan. I, I You know, this new trilogy, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I, we can, is a conversation for a later date, but um, I'm, I'm interested to see how, how they will end. And in both cases, just because... Um, I, I think the the filmmakers here and the studios, you know, in order for them to have any sort of street cred with the fans, they, they need to end these stories. They may not end the kind of the 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 properties. Obviously, they're going to keep making these films because they're very profitable. But these stories, they they need to come to an end to some extent in order for us to sort of appreciate them. Um, and uh, I'm I'm curious to see how they do that in both these cases. And so to me, um, uh, they, uh, that's why they're my number four.
1: I, I have to admit, and while I doubt I'll see it in the theater, I the previous Avengers: Infinity War ha- got my interest a little bit for the new one, a little bit maybe. Maybe on demand, I'll watch it. I don't
2: know. Well, I'll I'll definitely be seeing both these. That's
1: more than I've said about any other Marvel. No, movie. I agree
2: with you. The Last Avengers, I'll at least. I'll I mean, least I gotta see it. if Thanos wins. He's not going to, it's so
1: disappointing. <laughs> it's
2: terrible. Everyone else is gonna come back alive and yeah. it's gonna be like boring.
1: Okay. Uh my number four is a movie called The Woman in the Window. This stars Amy Havis. Adams and Gary Oldman, directed by Joe Wright. Um sounds like a bit of a remake of Rear Window, although it is based on a novel. Uh An an agoraphobic woman living alone in New York begins spying on her new neighbors only to witness a disturbing act of violence. Oh, yeah, that is so... I mean, it sounds just like Rear Window, um, but it is based on, uh, I guess, an original property. Um, The author is A.J. Finn. Uh, Joe writes the director... I. Admittedly, haven't seen a lot of his movies, but they all seem to do pretty well amongst critics. This has got an interesting cast, a good cast. Amy Adams, Gary Oldman, Julianne Moore, Anthony Mackie, Brian Tyree Henry, who's all the rage these days. Uh, This comes out in October, so perhaps uh, they feel like it's got some some award chances. Sounds interesting. My number four.
2: Hmm. Great.
1: I like these mystery, small-setting mystery-type movies, too, so
2: all right uh so on to threes my number three right yes is sir. a beautiful day in the neighborhood yeah i want to see tom hanks uh do something interesting again it's been a while i feel like it's been a few years since he's really you know got that oscar nomination um and uh yeah, it's obviously Fred Rogers is an interesting story. I don't know if you guys watched that documentary. It's now I on got HBO. To it yet. Yeah, it's it's all right, but he's a, he's an interesting dude. Um, and it's a, you know obviously there's a, some nostalgia there from the age we are, um, and it seems like it'll be like weirdly just a relatively nice movie to it's go. Director
1: see. of uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mm-hmm. Marielle Heller. I don't know that looks like a pretty paint by number biopic to me oh
2: yeah meanwhile i'm
1: it. looking at it on imdb and i got uh taron edgerton as elton John staring back at me which um is another one coming out this year um rocking sp- spoil any picks but that's another My number one <laughs> all right Chapin.
0: Okay, uh, my number three is uh, a film called Ford v Ferrari, uh, directed by. Oh, I heard about this. James Mangold, starring, oh god, um, this guy named Christian Bale, and uh, Matt, Damone, Damon, Matt, Matt Damon. Damon, um, Matt Damon, and it is. I didn't even look at the cast. Wow. It is um, about the sort of rivalry between, I think, like Carol. Matt Damon plays Carol Shelby. Um, and sort of Ferrari. I don't know. It looks the cast looks very interesting and um uh I know that I know that um Christian Bale was sort of circling a Ferrari project with Michael Mann for a while, um, that he decided to not do because he didn't want to gain the weight of playing Ferrari, interestingly enough. But um uh yeah, so this is a different film, but um, you know, I think I I I, I really have enjoyed most things that James Mangold has done and um I think I'm I'm excited to see this one he hasn't Uh, done anything in a while he did did logan Logan. a couple years ago oh
1: right um yeah that i I saw something about that i didn't know much about it i had no idea about the cast so that's definitely something to keep an eye on my number three is dogman um from Matteo garone director of gamora um this is a timid dog groomer living in a poor suburb, sells cocaine on the side, and stays out of trouble while trying to deal with his unstable, violent acquaintance who is a menace to the whole neighborhood. Um, there's a trailer out for this, and it looks really good. Like It, the, it looks beautiful. Um, it looks dark. I mean, Gamora certainly um, is a kind of dark, visceral movie, and I expect... Uh, Nothing different from this. Uh, It's an Italian film. So pretentious, yes, I know. But I think it looks interesting. And supposedly the (laughs) actor, the uh, lead actor, Marcello Fonte, um, has already gotten some awards. I guess still technically this is listed as 2018, but comes out in April. But um, was nominated for a BAFTA um, and uh, had a bunch of wins at Cannes. Hmm. Yeah, Best Actor at Con, cool. nominee for The Palm Door.
2: So it technically came out last year. But well, I mean, it comes
1: out this year, but it's, you know, festival circuit in 18. But yeah. April 12th is the release date in the
2: States. Great. I like how our lists have had no overlaps. Yeah, this is Lots great. Good, yeah, A lot of good recommendations for people out there. So my number two, is, I don't know anything about it other than the director and the cast. Um, and it's, uh, Jim Jarmish's The Dead Don't Die. Um, and it's gonna have Tom Waits, Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, Adam Driver, Steve Buscemi, um, Savani, or however you say it. Chloe yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I like Jarmusch. It, you know, he's one of those that... When was the last time he did something? He's kind of hit or miss, but, um... When he, he, uh, he did, um, Patterson. I didn't see it. Yeah. Patterson, he did Patterson. Uh, yeah. With Adam driver. Yeah. Um, and he did only lovers left alive. It's a zombie that. movie. It is a zombie movie. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, I'm interested. I, uh, you know, I'll definitely go see that. Well, yeah, this is interesting. Tom Waits. A fixie nominee.
0: Okay. <laughs> Mine. Nom- yeah. Uh, my number two is a film called Triple Frontier, which will be released on Netflix uh, actually in a couple weeks. Um, it is directed by the- J.C. Chandor or something like that. Yep. Um, he did that film Mar- Margin Call, which I think at least you and, you and I, Lee, liked a lot. Um, yeah, I liked it. He did All His Lost, which I really liked. Um, I didn't see a most violent year, but uh, it's just got a great cast and, again, in my search for the next Michael Mann, it looks kind of, and the idea is very intriguing as well. It looks very much like the kind of the action film. Um, they, they're like military veterans and they don't feel like they've gotten the career that or they gotten the sort of the accolades and the money that they, they deserve for being such elite operators. And they decide to rob a drug dealer, um, this to... was on my
1: list till I watched the trailer. I have. Yeah, to Yeah, I
0: agree. Really, I, I agree. think the trailer I the looks. Trailer great. didn't look that
2: great. Oh
1: uh, man, it looked. Uh, but I was a great cast: in the Ben Affleck, yeah, Oscar Isaac, is Charlie Hunnam. Yep.
0: Yeah, I'll probably it'll be interesting.
1: It. Like I was the same kind of thought process as you, Mark Bowles, the screenwriter. Yeah. Um, you know, I had all the had all the names that I was looking for, and even kind of the plot line, but the trailer just looked a little too, almost like. I don't know. I had a little raw rawness to it that I was not interested in. Hmm. Um, okay. My number two, uh, kind of curious why this is so <laughs> on my list. I'm very dubious <laughs> of the director, um, but it's the kid directed by Vincent D'Onofrio stars, Ethan Hawke. Uh, Chris Pat Pratt oh, this, is also in
2: this. The trailer just came out for this.
1: Oh, it has. I, ha- uh, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Um, Oh no, I have watched it. I don't know what I'm talking about because uh, That came what... out in
2: 1921.
1: Lee. <laughs> I I don't know why I said I haven't seen the trailer because I definitely have because a part of what really interested me in this is uh Dane DeHaan who plays Billy the Kid in it. Um who I don't know if I feel one way or the other, but he looks like a young DiCaprio in this. Um and, like looks and sounds like him and I'm like seems like he could be really good in this and I've come I around like him on, as an actor. I like him too. I mean, he's never really done anything to note really that I w- would call memorable, but what I like him. That, um, um,
0: Chronicle. Yeah. He yeah, was the best that part was of Chronicle.
1: Chronicle. Yeah. But that movie wasn't great. Um, okay. Ethan Hawke. I've come around on Chris Pratt. You know, I don't know. Let's see, I guess. I don't know what to think of him anymore, but yeah, I mean, again, like I don't really know what to expect from D'Onofrio as a director. I've never really liked him all that much as an actor, but we'll see what happens here this is um i feel like a story that hasn't been told yet with the exception of the movie that's already been made in 1921 my number two comes out march
2: 8th pretty soon yeah a lot of these are loaded towards the beginning of the year um my number one, actually, a movie made right here in Massachusetts that I didn't work on because I had to work on Wonderland, but it's <laughs> Ryan Johnson's *Knives Out*. Yeah, um, it's kind of like a murder mystery um, that takes place in this mansion in uh, Well in Wellesley, I believe, is where they filmed it. Uh, so, I still, you know ryan johnson since brick hasn't done anything i absolutely love what about looper i didn't love looper but brick is enough for me to know that he has something in there um that's interesting and and you know he got distracted a little bit by those star wars movies went off on a tangent there um and uh now he's doing something a little smaller again and uh yeah, and it's got a great cast, too. That should yeah, obviously for sure. be pointed out. All right, there you go. My number one.
0: Um, okay, my number one is another... It goes back to my kind of my number five, an interesting director, an interesting concept, and an interesting star, and that is the film Ad Astra, directed by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt, Ruth Nega, and Tommy Lee Jones.
1: How do, I knew this was going to be your number one. In fact, I... I think i may have even left it off my list
0: uh oh, i find that offensive of that. um
1: well read the plot line <laughs> it's
0: sci-fi okay.
1: 20 years and after his father plot. left
0: on a one-way mission to neptune in order to find signs of extraterrestrial intelligence roy mcbride an army corps engineer travels through the solar system to find him and understand why his mission failed
2: that was better than the movie going yeah to be.
1: Let's your see, reading of this. This office. is what I, this is what I, so I looked this up. I saw, I'm like, okay, James Gray, Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones. Haven't seen a lot of him. Astronaut Roy McBride travels to the outer <laughs> edges of the solar. Oh, never mind. It'll be Chapin's number one.
0: Oh, that's funny, Lee.
1: That was <laughs> a deep space movie. So. I actually do really want to see this. This looks great.
0: The, what I'll say about this is uh, James Gray is, is a director. I feel like I, I has, have always heard a, lo- a lot about, um, and has has a lot has a lot of accolades. I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but uh, I have seen a couple, and I've I've just never. I don't think he's ever lived up to at least the hype that I've anticipated from him. But I, I think you know this is um you know I and I also don't find Brad Pitt to be like the best actor as you guys know, but I I find like he is one of those guys who who is kind of amongst the. um you know the the Leo DiCaprio's who who is very selective about his work. And, yeah, he picks good projects. Yeah, and so I'm 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 interested to see this. And of course, yes, it's a sci-fi movie. So,
1: okay, um, so my number one, Jeremy, I was a little worried this was going to end up on your list somewhere. Um, it is Motherless Brooklyn, finally coming out.
2: No, in 2019,
1: November 1st, directed by wouldn't...
2: Edward Norton. I wouldn't even believe it if it was coming out. This is supposed to have been coming out for over like a decade.
1: 10 years or something. We were talking about this when we both yeah. had, you know, constant hard-ons for everything Edward Norton was doing and he was attached to this project to direct it, always trying to get it made. Um and finally, November 1st, 2019, we will see Motherless Brooklyn.
2: Oh wow. I didn't I just like assumed that this is Was never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> i would definitely make my list
1: bruce willis ed norton willem Dafoe, leslie mann alec baldwin are among the cast cast members uh michael kenneth williams oma Omar's in this um nice so yeah i mean we'll see there's not a trailer yet there's the same uh plot line that there's been for the past 10 years so private
2: detector with tourette syndrome <laughs> played by ed norton yeah. we were like going crazy when i heard that like oh that's gonna be <laughs> awesome oh my god
0: <laughs> that could be so bad I, can yeah, see I really could see getting like a zero on Metacritic and like, yeah. like Norton
1: never working again yeah. <laughs> that will wrap things up for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast we did not get to your emails perhaps we can uh, do a quick fix mailbag of some kind if uh, Chapin is so inclined to put that together but uh, either way we will be back Next week was something. I know we're working on a PTA retrospective. Uh, We'll see how soon we can get that out to you. We've got a bunch of movies to watch there. And we'll see what's coming to the streaming platforms and perhaps the theaters in the next couple weeks.
0: How about uh, your suggestion about top fives?
1: Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, So we like to get more emails if we haven't been clear on that uh, to this point. Um, So we had this sort of idea about our top fives and we'd like to just take suggestions. Very often we tie our top five into the movies that we review, um, which we aren't going to necessarily get rid of completely, but we'd like to have suggestions for top five ideas emailed into us and uh, we'll do those. We'll do, we'll come up with top fives on those and um, just get a little bit more involvement from our listeners. We'd love to hear what you guys um, would like us to do the top fives on. And then of course, Hear what your top fives are based on those suggestions as well. So, email in your ideas and uh, where do they email them
2: into?
0: Uh,
1: Well, they should know at this point, first of all. They should all have it written down. It's also also
0: attached to all the podcasts.
1: Yeah, but it is feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. F E E (laughs) 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 D. I'm not. I would continue, but I'm worried I'd mess up. There's so many damn letters.
0: don't, Don't spell it out.
1: I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.